In this episode, we're gonna talk about bushcraft qualifications and what you need to do to start up a company. We are going to talk about where to store your knife and your fire steel so they don't corrode. We're gonna talk about burning rubbish and we're gonna talk about cooking our starches from tuberous roots when we're foraging. Welcome to episode 12 of Ask Paul Kirtley. Now I've come outside of my usual woodland environment here, only to the edge this way, and I, I am sitting on the fence, literally as well as figuratively, um, not quite in the field, but if you look over there, it's an absolutely stunning evening. It's uh, very autumnal. Uh, I love those skies that you get at this time of year, and I just thought I'd come out here and share this with you. Also, it's too dingy in the, in the woods to record this, so. Um, this, this, this is the last of the available light, um, so we'll dive straight into the questions. And again, I'm going to nail some email questions, still catching up with the emails, and also maybe hit a, a, speak, a speak, pipe, speak pipe question or two at the end as well. Um, I'll read these as long as I can actually see them. Okay, so um, this question is from Christopher Perio Stone, and he says, my question is what course or qualification is required to run a bushcraft teaching course and set up a company to run bushcraft courses? Um, simple answer is none. You don't need any qualification because there is no such qualification. If you watched the previous episode, I talked about why I think we need uh, a basic NGB award because basically you can set one up tomorrow and um, the, the main difficulty you may have is getting some insurance um, to do that because frankly um, I wonder if um, a lot of people offering bushcraft training do have appropriate insurance both in terms of professional liability and public liability for the things that they are teaching and the place that they are teaching them. Um, I know we have to, even as a leading provider, jump through quite some hoops to get good comprehensive insurance, good quality insurance from a proper activities insurance provider. Um, I suspect some one man and their dog operations do not have insurance. That worries me as well. It's another reason why we may need an NGB. Um, but anyway, that's that's aside. Um, I know that we're well insured, that we have proper insurance, that we have more insurance that we need. And, um, you know, we do overseas expeditions as well where we get insurance for that. But basic bushcraft teaching, you don't need anything um, in terms of qualifications. Um, that doesn't mean to say that you shouldn't seek some qualifications. Um, and teaching bushcraft isn't just about bushcraft. There are plenty of people who are good at bushcraft who would be terrible at teaching it before um, they gained any training in teaching and instructing and coaching and mentoring. That's a completely separate skill set. And that's before we start looking at um, doing uh, corporate work where you're 
supposedly um, producing various outcomes using bushcraft as a medium for corporate development, for team building and those sorts of things. There's a lot of charlatans out there. Um, and the reason why there are a lot of charlatans out there is there is no barrier to entry. And so the only real barrier to entry, um, the only real competitive advantage that you have, because anybody can build a nice website these days and anybody can make themselves look good, is being really good at what you do and the people who have been around long enough in this industry have su survived for long enough because they are good at what they do and um, I think in some ways that keeps the industry healthy because the people who are crap fall by the wayside eventually but I do worry about somebody getting hurt or injured or eating something they shouldn't eat and being poisoned at some point but I've talked about that and addressed that in previous issues. But to answer your question, you don't need anything. But I would recommend seeking out some of the better quality instructor training programs if you have no experience at all. Um, John Ryder runs a good one um, that is ratified through the NCFE. He runs that to a high level. There are other people who've tried to replicate that more poorly. Um, they don't have the understanding and they've kind of slipped it through the NCFE um, NCFE uh, ratification in a way that doesn't really, um, as far as I can see, sit with the um, the uh, the values that really should be held there. But that's again a different issue. John Ryder runs a good course, um, but equally, just if you if you don't have bushcraft skills, go and get some bushcraft skills and. Go and learn from somebody who knows you can pay for that or you can find somebody who will share that with you um, for you know you can trade for other things you know however you want to do it i'm not saying go and do bushcraft courses because i run a bushcraft school frankly i don't make a lot of money out of making running bushcraft courses anyway um, the point is what you're paying for really when you go and do a bushcraft course is getting that skill set and that information in a distilled concise efficient way over a relatively short period of time. Of course you can go and learn all of these skills yourself, you can learn by trial and error, you can watch YouTube videos, you can get books, you can learn, you can get bits and pieces of other people. There's nothing wrong with that either but if you're intent on setting up a business I would say get a good grounding in personal skills. There's a little owl flying around out here somewhere I can hear it calling. Um, get, some basic, get some basic skills, good foundation of skills and then um, get some good, um, uh, uh, if you don't have it, get some training in teaching as well and coaching and mentoring and then that will stand you in good stead for starting to teach bushcraft. Um, there's a lot of people who are interested in bushcraft who just want to teach bushcraft because they think, oh that's something I'd like to do. That is a road to doing things very badly. Um, get good training in the fundamental pillars of what it is that you need to be a professional and you will do well and, uh, and good luck to you. And if you need any more advice, drop me an email and I'm happy to talk to you about that. Good, good. All right, next question. And I'm gonna have to run through these quickly now because we're losing the light. Um, this comes from Mike Mayo and he says, I've heard people say that a leather sheath is the worst place to store a carbon steel knife when not in use, as moisture can condense and damage the steel. Is this a myth or true? Also, I have a mish metal fire steel, which is horribly pitted, corroded and begun to turn to powder. This has been stored in a sealed Ziploc bag uh, with desiccant to impede moisture. So I have no idea why the rod has corroded. Can you oil your fire steels to protect the, from oxidation without altering their effectiveness? Really enjoy your blog as well as your videos. Cheers from across the pond. 
Well, Mike, thanks for the questions. Um, related questions there, basically about protecting two of your most important pieces of equipment from corrosion while they're in storage. Um, genuine concern that a lot of people have. Yeah, carbon steel um, knives can um, corrode over time, but if you keep something at a constant temperature and a constant humidity, you are not going to get condensation on it. It's only when temperatures go up and down and it's only when humidity goes up and down that you get condensation on the surface. Um, if the leather sheath goes away slightly damp and people say, oh, well, it went away bone dry. If you've had it outside, it won't be bone dry unless you're in the Arizona desert or somewhere where the humidity is very, very low and it's very, very dry. And it's very, very arid. Most environments are going to have a lot more atmospheric moisture than your home, particularly if your home is air conditioned um, and even if it's just centrally heated, it will have more moisture and therefore there will be a change that goes on bringing that leather into the house. Um, and so I would say keep, certainly keep them separate for a little while after you brought them in if they're going to be inside for any length of time. But once they've settled and if, as long as your temperature of your room doesn't go up and down too much, you can probably store them. But I would still oil it and camellia oil is particularly good. It was a traditional Japanese treatment for swords. It's very light as an oil and that's very good. So make sure your sheath is well dried, camellia oil on the blade, put it away. Um, I, I store all of my knives in the sheaths, the ones that I use, um, and I don't really have any knives that I don't use. Some get used more often than others. Um, that's what I do if I'm leaving them any length of time. Dry them off, make sure the sheath is fully dried, sharpen them up, polish them up, dry them off again, um, just use some metal polish, clean it off, camellia oil, back in the sheath, leave it, it's fine. It's a working tool if it's a little bit tarnished when it comes out of the sheath again, then just polish it up again. Um, it should not be heavily corroded or pitted or even slightly corroded as long as the temperature in your house isn't going up and down massively. Um, or in, in, if you store it in an out, outside uh, shed or a garage that isn't heated, then maybe over the course of the year or the winter or whenever it's stored, it might be going up and down a lot, in which case put it in somewhere where it's got a more stable temperature. All right. And it's the same with the ferrous steel. And frankly, you know, ferrous steels um, or mish metal or ferro rods or whatever you want to call them, they will corrode even with a slight bit of moisture, even in a pocket. You know, I can have wet trousers for a day, my fire steel in my pocket. At the end of the day, it will be slightly corroded and bat just went over there. It will be slightly corroded and um, it will be that kind of greeny um, oxidization on it. They oxidize very, very easily. That's why they, they spark so well. Um, yeah, and I've stored them in bags before and it's really remarkable how much moisture is trapped in there and over time um, corrodes them. Um, I, would, I would say it's better if you're going to store it in say a drawer at home along with your knife, just leave it out of a bag um, because then um, as you're not trapping uh, moist air around it for any length of time, if, if you see what I mean. And frankly, just scrape it off, it'll use fine. Um, if you want to put a bit of oil on it, that will work as well. But I don't tend to concern myself too much. They're relatively inexpensive. Um, a bit of corrosion on the edge isn't going to stop them working. Um, but if you want to store them for any length of time, then if you've got a nice handle on them, as some people do, custom handle, then maybe you want to store them um, a bit more carefully. Okay, I'm just going to check the gain on this camera because um, we are losing the light. It's at maximum gain. Okay, well, we may have to just do this pretty much 
in the dark because I've got that camera on maximum gain now. Right, so I had that question. Next question. We haven't done an Aspore Kirtley in the dark before, so you know they're always in the woods in the daytime, you know, a bit of change it up a bit. Um, if Martin Tomlinson's watching, I'll probably have a different, you know, maybe just a black screen on this one. Ask Paul Kirtley, number 12, no picture of me pulling a silly face or anything. Um, I know you like to comment on that. Um, okay, next question. Um, this is a good one. This is from Kevin Parker and he says, Hey Paul, as I strive to be a better woodsman, I could do with some advice. I get out a lot with in the woods with my daughter who's seven and we do our very best to leave no trace and leave minimal impact on the woods, which that's fantastic, Kevin. Good stuff. I wish everyone was as diligent as you. Um, this said, I've told her always to burn her sweet wrappers, etc., on the campfire to make sure we don't have, uh, don't leave litter but wonder if this is acceptable as these sorry i'm having difficulty reading this it's getting so dark acceptable as these tend to have plastic coatings or strictly take home everything we take into the woods thanks kev okay good question kev um a lot of people could do with taking a little bit more care about what they put in the campfire and don't put in the campfire um Personally, I don't think there's an issue with burning plastic in the fire. I think the main issue with, a, with, with you or even your daughter, certainly your daughter, is making sure that she's not breathing in the fumes from burning plastic on the fire. That's not gonna be good for her health, short-term or long-term. Um, I have a strict rule in my camp, no burning of rubbish when I'm cooking food on the fire either, particularly directly on the fire, so bannocks and roasting fish and meat over the fire, no burning rubbish because that's gonna put some residue onto the food. But other than that, I generally like to put uh, rubbish onto the fire if I can, because I'd rather it go that sort of thin cellophane wrapper is just gonna end up in a landfill somewhere. Um, I was speaking to somebody recently who is a professional in recycling and most recycling plants cannot recycle small thin bits of plastic because when they heat them up they shrivel down to nothing and they can't collect them very easily. So um, until that can be recycled um, I think the best thing to do is burn it in your fire rather than take it home and put it in the bin because it's only going to end up in a hole in the ground somewhere um, unfortunately um, but just make sure you're not uh, breathing it in directly and you're not cooking food over it and the one caveat i would say if it's got foil in it um, i see so many campfires these days with foil um, in the in the remains in the in the charcoal um, in, uh, in amongst the dog ends um, if it's got uh, foil in it then I don't burn it because it's there's such small pieces of foil it's very very difficult to pull out the fire when you're finished you're going to leave um, aluminium into in the in the local environment there which isn't ideal so hopefully that answers your question Kev I would say carry on burning them as long as they have foil in them and you probably can't see me now last question uh, I'm going to leave speak pipe for future episodes. Do you not think, sorry, this is from Thomas. Um, do you not think it is said that, or maybe you mean sad, I'm not sure, that things that was common knowledge for just a few generations ago, now people have to pay big money to relearn. And how do you think that the knowledge about bushcraft will be in the future? We will need to go courses to obtain these skills, or do you think we will learn not to lose these skills again? Thomas, um, 
So there seems to be connection there in your question that bushcraft courses cost a lot of money. Um, I don't think they do, and you would probably think, oh, well, he will say that because um, he teaches bushcraft. But as I say, I didn't get into this to, to earn a lot of money. Hey, I just realized this camera has got a, um, it's got a um, infrared setting on it, which I rarely use. Yes. So people, <laughs> I'm looking at the screen now, but I'll look at, look at you now. This is the first episode of Ask Paul Kirtley in infrared. So Ask Paul Kirtley goes infrared. Um, I'm not gonna make like a badger. This is the sort of thing you can film badgers with. This is a really good camera, this, um, for filming uh, wildlife at night. I've not done much of it, but uh, I forgot it had an infrared setting. So anyway, um, it's gonna be black and white, but that's cool. Um, certainly gonna keep Martin Tomlinson interested. <laughs> I'm gonna go sit back on the fence again. Hopefully you can just see me there. Good. So question about courses, paying for knowledge. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think some of the knowledge that gets taught on bushcraft courses was probably more commonly known by people in general, particularly when we were more rural societies in general, people would know more about what foods to eat from the hedgerows. They would be able to sustain themselves more from the land just by random foraging, particularly in Northern Europe and the UK. I think that was the case. Even if they were involved in farming, people would be picking things from the hedgerows until relatively recently. I know just a couple of generations ago, I mean, I grew up in the countryside, you know, I had several different places where I lived as a child, but it was always countryside. And you get the old people who, many of whom are now dead, but you get the old people who would know mushrooms, they would know what to forage from the, from the hedgerows, whereas young people didn't know that. And I was unusual in that um, I would want to learn that from them and they found that unusual. And so that's one thing I think young people haven't bothered to learn from the older generations because we've, been, we've become more removed from the environment where we can take those things. Also, particularly in first world countries, we've become more wealthy. Um, food supplies have, have become better. If you think about what things were like after the Second World War versus what they're like now, food is much more plentiful. Um, food is available from all over the world. Um, we don't need to go to the hedgerow for variety but that means that you have to make a conscious effort to learn that and a lot of people don't make the, make the effort and then when people do decide they want to learn that knowledge they haven't got anybody to learn from um, other than go and perhaps pay for somebody to, to teach them and there isn't an issue with paying somebody to teach because if somebody can sustain a living from teaching it means they're teaching a lot that means they're good that means the information and knowledge that they have is valuable um, because if they're crap they'll go out of business they'll go and do something else people won't go back to them so if somebody's been teaching for a while or is teaching full-time it tends to mean that they're good they should be able to get the information across to you effectively and in an efficient manner um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with paying for it it's the same as if I want to go and learn the guitar if I want to learn guitar well I'll go and pay a good teacher um, I won't go and pay a, a crappy teacher of course I could go and learn off my old uncle who's been playing in a in a band for years or, or whoever if that's available to me but if it's not then I'm going to have to go and, and pay somebody for the knowledge or trade with them in some way so that I, I get the knowledge. Um, so that's that's the first thing. Um, 
I think then other things that are taught within bushcraft courses weren't necessarily skills that were available or known to everybody. I think what bushcraft as a as a as a, as, as an industry, if you like, or certainly as a as a discipline within outdoor education, has provided is a, a collection and a collaboration of skills and a culmination and a bringing together of skills from all over the world that weren't known to people here. Um, you know, even 20 years ago when I was first getting interested in bushcraft, nobody had really seen anybody do fire by friction. Now we see it on television all the time. You know, when I first went on a bushcraft course, people on that course had never seen somebody like fire by friction before, either in person or on television. Whereas now we have people coming on our courses who have seen fire by friction, they've tried fire by friction, they may not have done it very well or they've failed and that's why they want to come on a course, but they're much more familiar with the concepts. And that's a good thing, but still it needs somebody to teach them um, efficiently. Um, and it also raises the game for us as instructors. You know, you have people that have got a much better baseline level of knowledge. There's a little bat flying around here, which is fantastic. Um, much better baseline level of knowledge, and therefore um, you have to you have to teach to a higher standard, or you're able to teach to a higher standard. But as I say, in the past, people didn't even know that that skill set still existed. Um, there used to be lots of jokes about rubbing sticks together and rubbing two Boy Scouts together. Now people, you know, even lay people in the street know that it's possible to go into the woods and get some materials and create fire by friction. That, so in that way, that sort of dissipation, that osmosis out into wider society, the knowledge is going out there that at least it's possible, even if people don't practically know how to do it, they're still gonna to have to seek out a teacher to learn how to do it. Um, same with feather sticks, you know, all those old fuzz sticks that were so badly drawn and so badly done in the old books, um, the standard of feather sticks has gone up massively. There's two bats flying around now, which is fantastic. I don't, they won't show up on the camera, unfortunately, but it's, it's nice to see them. Um, you know, the standard, you know, sharp cutting tools, well-applied technique, really good feather sticks. I'd never seen that in books before, um, you know, that not very long ago at all, books or magazines or videos. So some standards have raised. So knowledge that wasn't available generally is more um, available generally now than it's ever been, particularly with the internet. You can get more free information now than I could get paid information when I first started learning bushcraft and survival skills 20, 20 25 years ago. And so, um, you know, we had one or two books that were our Bibles and it was hard to get information otherwise. And now you can get old books have resurfaced. A lot of things have been reprinted on the internet for much less money than the antiquarian books. Newer books have been written, there's free videos. So there's more and more information than ever. So you don't need to pay for it if you don't want to. But I think the issue is having a filter having an efficient learning process, having a mentor. If you're gonna pay, that's what you should be paying for. You should be paying for good quality mentorship to get you up the skills curve more quickly than just trial and error and learning on your own. Um, otherwise, don't, don't pay for it. Um, learn yourself um, and go through the trials and tribulations of some of those things. Clearly with wild foods though, you need to be particularly careful and, and, and fungi in particular, mycology, I don't think there's any question there. Go and learn from somebody who knows. You can't do that by trial and error. You can do fire by friction by trial and error. Um, don't do 
edible fungi or even edible plants by trial and error. Go and learn from somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, that could be an old auntie who knows the old ways, but otherwise pay for somebody who is looking after the knowledge. You know, that's what they're doing. And that, you know, you know they, they, that takes time and effort to get to that level. Uh, and people should be rewarded for that because otherwise the knowledge will go. Right, since we are on infrared, I'm going to come a bit closer, but since we're on infrared, I am going to do one of the speak pipe questions because we've got time. I was just a bit concerned about the light going, it went. I will remember the solution. And we've got a speak pipe question. Hi Paul, Steve Colesell here. Just wanted to say thank you for your Ask Paul Kirtley um, and the podcast, enjoying those. Um, and I know they take a lot of work and effort and I think there's some fantastic information on there and grateful to you for it, so thank you. Um, I also wanted to say, uh, I just looked at your Instagram account. I'm not on Instagram, but I popped in there and had a look and saw the photograph of Greater Reed Mace and uh, the Silverweed. And I noticed on the comments with the silverweed that you spoke about the value of cooking the storage organ, the underground part of that plant, because it makes more, more of its nutrition available to us uh, when we consume it. And I wanted to ask you, based on that, a generalised nutrition question um, as to whether it w more nutrition is, is available, available um, across the board when you cook food. I've, I say this because I'd heard about this thing called a raw diet that some people swear by and I'd also heard conflicting evidence that certain foods uh, you get more from them if they're uncooked and others argue that you get more from them if they are cooked. Obviously I'm sure you can overcook everything and, and boil all the nutrition out of it so that it's it's useless to you or next to useless but I wondered if given you cook it the right amount all foods um, gave you a greater nutritional reward if you did cook them first. Um, if you know about that or if you're able to give me any information about that, I would be very interested to know. Thank you. That's a somewhat long but a very, very good question, Steve, and the, the calibre of question that the questions that's coming in these days is is excellent and and uh, of that type i'm very very happy to to answer and uh, even if it is a longer question um very very worthwhile so yeah i think to a certain extent you've partially answered your own question there um yes you can overcook things and you can damage the nu nutrition in them um that's certainly true of things with vitamin C in them, for example. Uh, you know, one of the, the famous historical cases is um, they realized that, uh, that lemons um, and citrus fruit were beneficial in terms of preventing scurvy. And so what they did was rather than providing fresh uh, fruit uh, to start off with, they boiled, <laughs> they boiled the, the, I think it was lemons, boiled the lemons, it was either lemons or limes, boiled the lemons down and took that to sea and they basically knackered all the vitamin C, all the ascorbic acid in there and it didn't really help prevent scurvy. Um, 
so yes you, you can and there are clearly other you know green vegetables even things like broccoli i think you're best off under you know somewhat undercooking them and overcooking them to get the best nutritional value from them um but i think any, anything with kind of like a high cellulose um content is uh you're not going to digest that very easily when it's raw um, you may get it down you more easily if it's cooked um, but particularly starches and it was in the context of starches that we were talking about underground storage or organs um, so complex carbohydrates things that don't taste sweet on your tongue but do provide sugars um, that they are stored as glycogen in your liver and your muscles and your blood that give you energy um, directly rather than your body having to transform them uh, you know in a way that say protein has to be broken down into into component parts and that's a slower process so carbohydrates which are going to give you um, still relatively slow burn energy compared to simple sugars compared to sucrose and dextrose and fructose and all of those um, but um, some those you are going to digest more easily if they're cooked the classic example that i can give you that everybody can relate to is a potato yeah uh, raw potato versus cooked potato um which is better to eat um and it's not just because it's easier to chew it's because you get um more uh, available starch from the cooked than you do from the raw it's as simple as that um, and it's the same with a lot of tuberous roots that's why we cook them um carrots parsnips turnips um, all of those things we cook them and it's the same with the wild versions you want to be cooking them to get the most nutrition from them um, it's the same with a lot of nuts as well they're much better roasted than they are raw um, again you can get more nutrition from them and that cropped up again in the conversation in the podcast with professor Alyssa Crittenden um, in there I, I can't remember what whereabouts it is in terms of minutes into the podcast but if you are interested in nutrition and living from the land you should listen to that podcast and that's not just aimed at steve that's aimed at anybody who's watching this um because uh, Alyssa Crittenden has spent a lot of time uh, studying the Hadza and looking at the diet and looking at how they live. And um, one of the things again that have been found is that they get more nutri nutritional value from the tuberous roots that they eat by cooking them. Um, and that's in that podcast it's not just me speculating on this this is a this is a known uh, uh, concept within nutritional studies um, so onto the raw diets um, <laughs> I don't want to you know I don't want to diss anybody I don't want to you know people I believe people are free to do what they want um, and I believe people particularly when it comes to food um, I think the more education about food and the more freedom to eat the foods that people want to eat, the better. Um, but um, a lot of people that I meet or have seen or know of who eat raw food diets um, are quite skinny. Um, some of them look malnourished, in my view. Um, also, when you start looking into the raw diets, and I've looked into them a bit just out of academic interest, not something I've participated in. Um, but I say this as somebody who used, I used to be a vegetarian many years ago, and I was a vegetarian for seven or eight years. Um, but I'm now somebody who eats meat. I eat food that's cooked. Um, I don't subscribe to a fruitarian or, or a raw diet or any of the, or, or even the so-called paleo diet or any of these things um, I just try and eat fresh food um, 
try and eat a good amount of wild food. I eat fresh food with as little processing as possible um, in a good balance and listen to what my body wants, but not what my vices want, as it were. Um, listen to what really works um, and also read and look at what works for athletes and what works for um, people who spend a lot more time than I do studying nutrition. Um, but if you start looking at these um, raw diets, what you'll find is that they start doing things like you know, sprouting seeds, germinating seeds, and that might require some heat to do that. And it, it, it's all these, this, it's almost like they're sort of cheating around the margins. And, I, and I'm not casting aspersions, but um, I think what I'm trying to say, I think it's very, very difficult to get a good wide range, wide ranging, particularly for an active person, and particularly if you spend a lot of time outside, um, you know, where you need to require, you know, rely on your strength and your fitness and your vitality um, and need to stay warm overnight when you're sleeping outside and all of these things that you need when you're outdoors. I think it's hard to do that on completely raw food. Um, I've tried doing hikes, for example, with, without stoves to save weight where I just eat um, you know, flapjacks and cereal bars and fruit and dried fruit and, and none of it was cooked. And even that was a struggle with the high energy output. Um, I, I, after several days, I was just completely knackered. Um, and this was in a, this was a, in a mountain walk in, in, in Scotland. Um, I've never done it since. I've always taken a stove and fuel because the extra weight is worth its weight in gold. Um, I can cook pasta and, or noodles or uh, dried potatoes or rice or something at the end of the day and I can get the, the energy that I need from that and that far outweighs the extra weight of carrying the stove and the fuel um, and you know that's my anecdotal evidence for the value of cooking starches but there's plenty of other scientific anthropological and nutritional um, uh, evidence out there as well that that is the case um, so <laughs> flip side is if you want to lose weight don't cook anything because <laughs> you're not going to get as much from it um, um, but in terms, so that, but that relies that, you know, that pertains particularly to uh, starch um, as opposed to green vegetables. Certainly you don't want to be cooking your salad. You don't want to be cooking your lemons, <laughs> um, but you do want to be cooking some of your meat and some of it more than others, depending on, depending on what it is clearly. Um, so yeah, I hope that helps. Um, I hope uh, that's useful. F further questions on food and nutrition, um, drop me a line. It's always good to hear from you, whoever it is. And uh, as I say, listen to that podcast with Alyssa Crittenden. You know, I'm trying to bring information to the broader bushcraft community that isn't necessarily easily available, that takes people up to the next level, but it does require people to, to, to take it all on board and listen to it. And you may need to listen to some of those interviews several times to get the full information from them. There is a transcript there as well. I don't write the transcripts. Um, I have somebody, uh, I pay somebody to do the transcripts for me. So I can't always guarantee that every single technical word is spelled correctly, but there are pages and pages and pages and pages of transcript there. So you can print those off, use those as, as a basis of notes if you want to, when you're listening to those podcasts, highlight areas that are of interest to you, research them further. I often put extra links in those podcasts as well. So if you're if you're just an Ask Paul Kirtley uh, watcher or listener and you haven't listened to my main podcast, the Paul Kirtley podcast, get over to my blog 
or get over to iTunes and subscribe today um, because there's always some really high quality information on there. That's the, some of the highest quality information that I put out and that's in conjunction with other experts. So anyway, as it gets dark, the bats are still flying around and the moon's out now and the stars are starting to come out. Beautiful evening out here, beautiful autumnal evening. I will leave you and uh, I will see you on the next episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, which will be episode 13. Unlucky for some, um, but hopefully not for me. See you then. Cheers.